Hi, I'm your host, Rowan Tonkin, and welcome to Being Planful, the show for FP&A leaders and planning experts. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Being Planful podcast. My name's Rowan Tonkin, and I'm excited to, uh, to be sharing uh, today's episode with Steve Player. Uh, Steve is Managing Director of the Future Ready Finance Organization. Steve, let's start with the name. What does it mean to be a Future Ready Finance Organization? Well, it's a good question, Rowan. Uh, when we thought about the name of the company, we wanted to focus on who our customers were. And our customers are finance organizations, primarily CFO, uh, controller, head of FPNA, and really what what does those what are the people leading finance today need to be most focused on? And it's really being ready for the future. So we, we really focus everything we do around how do you get ready for the future? And for most finance organizations, frankly, it's, it's looking very deeply at what they're currently doing and identifying a ton of stuff that can only be described as dumb stuff that they're stuck doing. And if we can help them stop identify and stop doing dumb stuff, merely to create the time, the capacity to do the stuff you really ought to be doing, we're going to get there. We're not going to be able to add a whole lot of new headcount, uh, although we're going to be, you know, we're obviously going to need to grow. But if we could just do, you know, quit doing dumb stuff, we could free up a lot of capacity to really focus on what can really help the organization be ready for the future. And finance has a much more strategic role in the company, a much more powerful role in the company if they can move to being, helping the organization become future ready. Well, I have a, uh, I have a kind of interpretation of what I think you mean by dumb stuff. Um, so let's explain it. What do you mean by dumb stuff? Well, well, dumb stuff are things that you have to do because of the way the process was designed and the design is faulty. It's flawed. So for instance, take your traditional budgeting. And I know Planful sells a tool and I'll, I read most of your literature and I see a lot of references to budgeting. But when you look at budgeting, what it typically entails is a once a year exercise that makes a whole bunch of assumptions about the future and then sets stakes in the ground, kind of fixed targets that we will do these things. Well, the we will do these things is only useful if all the assumptions you made in determining what things you would do turn out to be true. And every, every month we have new things that are sprung upon us that we didn't anticipate. You know, did your budget include... Uh, Russia going to war with the Ukraine and all the sanctions that that would bring and all the turmoil and all this supply chain disruption. Simple things that just the minute your assumptions go out the window and the disruptions there, the people in traditional budgeting are still trying to answer for various explanations of why aren't we on this this dotted line that we predicted we were going to be on when we set the annual budget. We're holding everybody accountable to that, even though all the assumptions that went into that accountability are blown up. Mm -hmm. It's not useful. That multivariate explanation is one of the most it's worst things you can do. There are better ways to think about where you want to go and to become much more agile, much more forward-looking, and really do forward-looking planning the way you would on a battlefield. I mean, when you're on a battlefield, you have an objective of what you're trying to do. When things don't go the way you want it to, either much more favorably and you can rush ahead or much more unfavorably, you have to back up. You need to adjust your plans and tactics, and you've got to do that constantly. And that's where the real planning comes in. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more. I mean, uh, we obviously have our mantra of continuous planning, and that's all about, you know, increasing the ability to make decisions, right? You know, you talk about it in terms of the battlefield. Well, 
you know, would you like to have, uh, you know, four decisions in that battlefield environment or 52, right? And so when organizations are in that, you know, annual or quarterly planning situation, well, if they can get into weekly operational decisions, then every CEO under the sun would rather have 52 course corrections than four, right? The, uh, the, the problem with your analogy there is you're freaking out half your audience because <laughs> people who have to put together that annual budget and that monumental Herculean task of trying to get everybody to agree on the annual budget, thinking, wait a minute, Rowan, you're not asking for four times. You're not asking quarterly. You're asking for 52. We will drown. You will drown if you do it the same way you've been doing Correct. it. Correct. So you've got to change the process where... If you're doing it weekly, you can afford to, to do minor corrections. And then based on those, what you, we try to do this, we get a quick result. And based on that, we take advantage of what's working well and we shift and adjust the things that aren't. So by being more agile, well, that's, 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 that's what quick course corrections are, is, is a better yeah. agility. You're better able to, to basically like a ball team, you run plays. If you're being successful, you keep running. If you're not, you'll switch and go to something alternative. Yeah, so uh, let's talk about how do we get there, right? Because this all sounds lovely, right? And everyone would uh, would want to be in this place. But it's one thing going from an environment today where you are stuck in a very uh, you know rigid annual operating plan, and and you know the the will of the business is imposed upon you, where you're being told no, you're going to do the monthly variance reporting because you know that's the assumption, and we need to be able to tell you know our our management team and our board and everything like that, you know, how are we going to the plan, which was probably made, you know, eight, nine months ago and was made on false assumptions, right? How do you make that big shift, right, to where you are future ready? Well, the first thing comes into really understanding when you're answering a question, in many cases, what's the question behind the question? So mm -hmm. why do they want us to explain variances? What are they really, what, what's the real purpose of that exercise to begin with? And when you think about it, what it's trying to do is it's trying to say, are we on track? Okay. Mm -hmm. And so you have to break that down and be thinking, what's a better way to see if we're on track in terms of what's out there? Uh, in many cases, you're trying to reach an annual objective in kind of a target. Now, there's all kinds of problems with just annual target setting versus certain long term. Target settings are really trying to communicate throughout the organization, where are we trying to go? And we need everybody to know where we're trying to go, what the, what the command, in military terms, what the commander's intent, what are we trying to achieve so we can all work toward that, that goal? Well, when you think about your target setting, why do we have annual targets that we monitor throughout the year? Even when we get down only two or three months left, we're still looking at that year-end target. Instead, what you need to do is, is fundamentally take your entire planning process and break it into its elements, separate it, and then find better ways to do each thing. So in target setting, you're much better served by having a target that's actually a little further out. If you move your target setting instead of once a year and make it two to three years out, a midterm target, using the strategic plan as the overall direction where you're trying to get to in three to five years, then about half that distance. If you're a five-year plan, three years. If you're a three-year plan, about a year and a half, put your interim target out there. Directionally, that's where we're trying to go. It goes beyond the annual physical wall of the financial system because the business goes beyond the physical wall. No business goes and stops on the 12th, on the 31st day of the last month of the year. Everything always keeps going. So it needs that target out there. So if you'll pick that midterm target, it gives the directional information and that's as, that's as detailed as it needs to be. Then you come back in and say, that's where we're going. How do we get there as fast as we can? 
And so the, the, the organizational work, the planning, the if you move to a rolling forecast, you can use forecasting as a coordinating mechanism to coordinate the parts to, to reach and move toward that, that direction. But it's really replacing every piece of what you try to achieve with annual budget, what the real question is, with a new and better way to answer those questions. And so what... Who are the stakeholders involved in making this shift? I mean, obviously, it, it, this goes just beyond finance, right? This is a fundamental shift in the way that the business is run, managed, communicated to, you know, let's say it's a public company, right? This has bigger shifts than just, you know, the finance team. Who are the stakeholders and, and what's the manage, the change management that you would expect to see in this type of well, again, it, it starts with the, with the finance organization because we're typically charged with whatever we whatever the plan whatever the planning and control system is. It's usually owned by finance, mm -hmm. so you start there. But you start asking more fundamental questions about what is a better way to achieve our objectives. And in many cases, uh, a lot of people fear the, the the board. They fear top management. In many cases, they're some of the easiest to get on board because they they don't. You know, once you explain what happens in an annual system, most of them are aware of it. They don't like it. They just have never been proposed something better. So you start talking about companies that are doing it in a better way, in a more thoughtful way, in a more continuous way. It's, you know, most people that are in the leadership positions are pretty smart financial people. Once you explain it, they get their arms around it pretty quick. And so you start there and, and begin to work. And then you just start moving in, in simple ways. The simplest way was to be moving to a rolling forecast. Because everybody universally, even if they believe in annual budgeting, they still think I, I could do better if I at least had a forecast and update what was going on. So that begins the path, but then you really have to break it down into what are the different things the budget tries to do? What does the forecast try to do? And if all you're trying to do is take a shift from budgets, a lot of people say that beyond budgeting, it's just moving to a rolling forecast. If all you do is take everything you used to do with the budget and try to do it with the rolling forecast, you will still not win. Because the minute you start shifting all those things, you start using the forecast inappropriately. Mm -hmm. Forecasts to work effectively need to be simple, easy to produce, and they should just show where do we think we're headed. If that doesn't meet the target, and rarely does it ever do, nor naturally, then you need to plan differently, okay? But the forecast should merely be based, if, based on everything we're doing, this is where we think we're going to get to. And you need to know, is that above or below where you want to get to? And you look at, the only way to change that is to change the action plans, to change the inputs. What are we going to hire differently? How are we going to change our processes? What are we going to do to sell more? How do we adjust? to begin to see something happening. But once you start using forecasts to artificially meet targets, then you start using wishful forecasting. I know what the target is, so I'm gonna make sure it bends, even though I don't know how it's gonna bend, but I'm just gonna make it reflect that way so the bosses won't yell at me. That's not forecasting, that's wishing. <laughs> yeah, a, a wishful forecast is something that no uh, leader wants at all. Uh, yeah. And, you know, what a, the intention, clearly the intention of a forecast is to present an accurate prediction of the business, regardless of the target. Right? Higher low, higher low, yeah. whatever, whatever yeah. you think is most likely going to happen. It, it, exactly. And then so one of the challenges about producing a, a, the forecast is the frequency with which you can get that intelligence from the rest of the business. Right. And I think one of the things that you were talking about earlier is. Well, if you're stuck in this budgeting mindset and you're doing all this low value variance work, then you're restricted on the finance side because we're not getting all these heads to come in to actually facilitate the forecasting process. Is that one of the, the challenges you see in trans transitioning is just the manpower required? Well, it's the way you're doing forecasting. 
The way you're describing forecasting is you're saying, for me to get a good forecast, I have to reach to the operational people, reach to the salespeople. I have to reach over there and extract from their minds what they think is going to happen. So every time I have to get a new forecast, I have to go out and probe their mind and understand and, and gather that up. Okay. And that's really what it is. You think yeah. of a Vulcan mind melt. We don't know how to do Vulcan mind melts, but that's really what you're trying to do. Instead, you need to do forecasting differently. You need to flip the forecasting around and start looking at what we call predictive logic diagrams to make sense for planful sales for May. If you really know what you're doing, you have a pretty good idea of what they're going to be. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you know your sales cycle may be a three-month to a 12-month to a cycle. So the leads you're going to close in May, there may be a small percent of them you're going to find in May and close in May, but the most of them, you've already identified who the likely suspects are. So you have a sales funnel. All sales methodology is about finding likely prospects, moving them down a funnel and converting them into sales. And there's a timeline to move through that process. So the more you understand and you're tracking data about that, you know how many leads you have, what the size of deals are, the better mm -hmm. you get at finding likely ones, the more you get predictive logic diagram, the more you get predictive drivers of what's going to be. So based on the number of leads you have, based on the size of the deals, based on the contact you're having, you can score to see how, how likely it is that you're going to convert May into the numbers that you're looking for. And so every part of the business is the same way. It is a stream of activities well before. If you think about financial reporting, we're the transaction. We're the score. We're the last thing that happens. You know, we made a sale. All the upstream work happened. We could have seen it all coming. We just finally booked it. Okay. Yeah. You can't try to predict the final booking. You can look to look at the physical drivers. So rather than have to do a mind melt with people in the field, start looking for the physical things. How many leads are we tracking? You know, where are, the, where are things moving? How many contacts? How many seminars do we have? How, how are we tracking that through? If you're on the bill side, is the product coming? Is it gonna, when's it, is it gonna hit its launch date? Do the early tests, you could do early A-B testing, the early test, what kind of response rate does it look like we're gonna have? There's so many things you can do proactively if you shift to that mindset. And so by being future ready is you can't control external events like wars in other countries or pandemics or many of the things it is, but you can control what you're doing to get ready for those and understanding how they feed the logic that produce the numbers that you're trying to produce. Yeah. Again, you know, like can't agree more. I think the challenge that uh, I hear most frequently is I want to be doing that. I want to be doing that, but here I am stuck doing this. Right. You know, all you, that low value. You've you got to get some permission to stop doing dumb stuff. You've got to find a boss who's willing to be an umbrella holder and say, hey, I understand. Let's figure out what we can stop. So we free up the capacity to go do the more meaningful things. And the minute you start doing the more meaningful things, you have hard data. You have hard evidence to show mm -hmm. this stuff I'm doing. It adds to predictive value. It adds to what we can understand about the business. It's working on bigger problems. Nobody in finance wants to work on menial problems or wants to work on busy tasks or do what I call monkey work where papers yeah. being thrown everywhere, but you, you're not really understanding anything. You got to get past that by, by, by carving out and saying, we're, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to find a better way to meet that objective. Yeah. I mean, we, we want to get off the hamster wheel. Right. And uh, you know, that, cause that cycle never changes, right. Whether, you know, the, the monthly close end is always going to be there. And if you keep doing it, you're always going to be doing that monthly variance reporting. Well, and when you think about it, what's the question behind the question? Why do we care about the monthly close? We're trying to validate, okay, that 
what we thought was happening is actually happening. You think of the operating people, the people you say, who's the customers of the monthly close? Who are we trying? We're trying to get those books closed faster. Who are we trying to get that information to? Do you think they're waiting for that information? We like to think they are, <laughs> but most of the operating people I talk to, they're not waiting 10 days, 15 days, 20 days to talk about the previous month. Why? Because the business decisions today on the first, second, the third, we're, we're here on the 25th of April. There's been 25 days of activity. If you haven't looked at the, at the uh, March year in num March close numbers, do you care? Do you care on the 5th of April? What, uh, you know, what you care about, is the, if you care about sales, you look at it every day. Yeah. And so all the monthly close does is validate that all those numbers you looked at, they were true. There wasn't any object, there wasn't anything I used about th those numbers you've been relying on, you can keep relying on. So that's all close is, is a validation of, of stuff we've already reported. Everybody that needs timely information needs it much faster than monthly. They need it weekly or even daily. Why? Because if they need to change something, they don't wait till they missed it. They want to change it now. So that's the way the business is going. And it's only getting faster. The minute you can start going predictively instead of saying, hey, if I know people's not going to close because I haven't got enough leads, I had to start working on that 90 days ago or 120 days ago. So I can't fix May, but I might. So again, the business leaders who are really smart understand what's driving the business and they're trying to figure out how to fix that upstream because they know the way the process works they have to get the upstream right so it flows down the funnel and gets the downstream or they figure out how to make the funnel more efficiently or again business is managed by being proactive and looking what's going to influence the future finance is still stuck in this back we're literally sitting on the back of the boat in most cases in finance we're staring off the back of the boat we're looking at the wake and we're yelling over our shoulder at the captain we're going about this fast and we might be turning you cannot add a lot of strategic value staring off the back of the boat. You got to get up on the bridge by the captain and start looking forward. That's where the business is going. That's where everybody really wants to be. And, th and that's where to be future ready. That's where you got to be. You got to see the stuff coming at you in time enough to steer around it. So let's talk about, you know, once we're in this future state, we, we are future ready, right? And to your point, future ready doesn't mean we, we predict all these external events, right? No one predicts the external events. They just happen and you've got to be ready to be agile and, and adapt with them. But what does it truly mean to be future ready? And what's the value of being future ready for an organization? Well, to be future ready, that implies you really understand your business. You systemically understand the cause and effect within your business. So you understand how your processes work. You understand the key elements of change in those processes. So if you've got a new product being launched, a new version, you've got a special marketing event, you understand the big events that are trying to give a, a shift change. When you understand your business, you understand its cost profile. You understand where its margin comes from. You understand who its customers are and what kind of customers you find. So you really understand what gives this base of business, like a ship out on the ocean, what gives its momentum? What's its source of power and how does it keep going? And then you're looking for the big things that are going to radically shift that up and down. And you'll see those events and you can, uh, again, you're proactive so you can predict when the events are going to happen. You can do early testing to see what you think the likely results of those events are going to be. And in many cases, you are in your mind working through the planning to see this is how it all comes together. I have a model. I can do a series of what ifs. And you're trying to see how it's predicting how it's coming. And so the, when I get down to doing month end stuff, all I'm doing is validating. I'm validating, say, everything. And oh, by the way, 
I didn't wait to month end to test the sales. I, I'm, I'm checking that pre, you know, frequently as we go through. So you eliminate a lot of the month end kind of exceptions and, and, and the basic things because you're focusing on the big drivers. You're focusing on the big rocks that cause your business what it is going to be. Then how do you get ready for the unpredictable, which is, is a huge issue? You do that through a set of scenario plans. So with scenario plans, we can't tell what's going to happen with wars or pandemics. We can't tell what's going to happen if our key customers uh, consolidate, if our key competitors consolidate. But we can play scenario planning. We can play what-if games that says, if that happened, what, what could we do to respond? So what the scenario, a future-ready company is doing a lot of scenario playing says, if this happens, how do we get ready for it? And you literally create your playbook that says, if this happens, it requires this kind of response. This is how we set up to do it. This is the plays we run to put us in position to do that result. Now, if it requires that, and we don't have any plays that get us, get us ready to do that, then we have to do the things to develop the capabilities to be able to run those plays. And, it, and we don't try to do everything. We don't try to boil the ocean with thousands of scenarios could be out there, but you wanna focus on the big ones. And the nice thing about putting a scenario plan together, you put it together, and then you just refresh it. Every year or two, you come back and you do a little refresh. But what you're building is a series of potential plays that your organization is capable of running. Like a team, you understand where your best position. So you know based on your, on your customers, on your, on your capabilities, on your position in the marketplace, what's the best way? Are you, if trouble happens, do you want to try to outrun it? If trouble happens, do you want to bulk up against it? If trouble happens, do you need a team with somebody? So you think through, and that what being future ready is, is knowing if something happens, I know what I need to do to start moving. And it helps you even if you have something happen that you didn't anticipate because you at least have thought through the different plays, what you're already strong at running, what you can shift to, and you've got a whole series of other playbooks that you can borrow plays from and say, all right, let me put this together and I'll create a customer for this unusual thing we hadn't thought about. But because I thought about six to eight different potential plays, different scenarios, and the different plays we run, I know where I can pull from and create a custom book very, very rapidly. And that puts you always thinking and always thinking about what can I do to make my organization more agile and more capable to handle whatever comes at us. Yeah. And so with those scenarios, you talked earlier about the, the need to get away from the annual operating plan and looking at two to three year targets. Is that is that the level with which you're doing those that those scenarios like where where in the kind of if you look if, if I pulled up one of those business scenarios. What's its kind of, you know, its time frame? It's, it's, uh, you know, the scope of one of those scenarios. Well, it primarily, I'm looking in that kind of situation, primarily, I'm looking for things that happen dramatically. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm looking for an event that, that is sprung upon us that needs a rapid reaction. So I'm looking for a pandemic. I'm looking for a world crisis. I'm looking for a major supply chain disruption. I'm looking for something that needs a rapid instant response in terms of what's out there. I'm planning that basically I'm planning a horizon that's 15 to I mean, 18 to, to, to 24 months because what I'm planning is to transition because in many cases we'll take the current war okay mm -hmm. Russia and, and the Ukraine are fighting at some point if our prayers are answered the, the fighting will be over people will get dying on a daily basis. But the world post then is forever changed. It doesn't go back to being like it used to be. 
The disruption this causes is there. The devastation is already there. The impact on the Russian economy, if the sanctions work, it's there. So you, you don't go back to what you were doing. You shift to a completely new reality. So you're planning a horizon that takes you through the transition to where everything shifts in terms of what's out there. So you're always looking at at least 18 to, I wouldn't probably do more than 36 months unless you've got a really long supply chain. But I'm looking for those kind of major shifts. Now, you've also got going in there in your strategic plans, what's happening in your industry. Don't confuse these dramatic things, which things evolve to, unless they can trigger very rapidly. So if you're in an emerging technology, I'll take Planful as an example, because everybody knows who you guys are. You have a major competitor. He has an economic event. He's a, he, he gets a whole lot more liquidity. So now all of a sudden, you've got the same competitor, same everything, except he has access to a whole lot more money. That makes him a bigger threat to you. So what you have to think about is what makes that, how do you counteract that? If, but if he has access to more money, how much do you look like him and how much does that imply that you might have access to more money too? So your counter that might be, if they can get that deal, how do we have to look to get a similar deal so that we can at least stay in, in a good competitive position with them? If it's really dramatic, you have to say, how do we merge with somebody? How do, how do, how do we get uh, instantly get faster assets in terms of what's out there? I mean, it's, there's just lots of different ways to play it, Rowan. And it, but this is what's the fun part about FP&A is you're really talking strategically and you're, you're at the owner level. Mm-hmm. What makes what is what is good for the owners? What is good for where we're trying to go? How do we build a healthy cash flow stream? Because all ownership is based on an entity that can have a good, healthy cash flow stream. Your your value is based on your cash flow stream. Whether you own or you sell to anybody else, it's always based on how do I keep building. So if you always focus your planning on how do I keep building healthy cash flow streams, you can keep the business in pretty good stead because that's the best way to reward most all the shareholders, stakeholders included. Yeah, and and. You know what I what I love about this philosophy is it's it's driven by the you know the commercial slash operational drivers, not the financial drivers, right? There's different sets of metrics in a business, and a lot of the time when you talk to FP&A teams, they're talking a language that the business don't actually speak, right? Um, but they're doing that at an abstraction level above the business because they're harvesting, to your point, they're harvesting all this information, capturing it all in an aggregated layer, and then being like all right, this is what's happening. But actually, all the work is happening underneath. And to to really get to that next level, you need to be in that operational level, maybe not being the driver, but at least being aware, understanding and, and generally uh, a contributor to how does the business need to think about their models, right? Every time I speak to my FP&A person, they're asking me really good questions and I'm like, oh, I haven't thought about that before. Maybe I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, but I know lots of answers to questions that they don't know in, in my world as well. And, and it's really important for me to share that, right? But they also need to share back because that can elevate, you know, my understanding of the, the fiscal levers of the business, right? Yeah. And, and good questions, I, I find, FP&A, what would, what would happen, Rowan, if I gave you an extra X amount of money? What would happen to the, the marketing pipeline then? What would that do to the sales funnel? What if we doubled the sales force? What would happen then, right? Like those types yeah. of provocative questions are really fun. Yeah, and I would even ask that a little, a little broader than in terms of what's out there, because you might ask, what can I do with more money? But I would ask, uh, how well do we understand who our customers really are? And what the attribute, what is our ideal customer? Who, who, what's the company that really we're, we're designed and why does our product meet their design? Because if I know who it is, then 
how good are we at uh, finding more customers just like that? I mean, more money to find customers is great, but if you know more who your customer is and what attributes they have and then where they can be reached, it becomes a whole lot easier and cheaper to find them because you know exactly who you're looking for. If you're going to take and plow that across a broad universe and hope a, a handful of targets fall out, yeah. it's a whole lot better the more I can target that and understand it. So the deeper question is, who is our customer? Why are they customer? What do they like? And how many more are there out there? What's our penetration? If that's our customer segment, what share do we have of that mind? And how do we get more? And how do I target all my marketing vehicles to go after those targets in terms of what's out there? Or what's adjacent? We don't have a customer in that area, but they look exactly like these guys. So we think with a slight modification, we can move over to a different industry vertical or over to a different service level and, and, and go after. And so that you're trying to figure out not only what if I had more to spend, but what could I, how could I make my spending more effective by being clear and understanding more about who, the, who the target is and what it takes to hit them. And so that, that's really where the, the, the FPNA really gets good. But again, think of it again, I'm thinking about drivers. I'm thinking about understanding the customers and, and, and I, I'm trying to think, how do I make this algorithm better? You always can apply more money. Yeah, that's the easy thing. But what can I do to take, how can I make the model more efficient? How can I make the model more effective? Because if I can do that, I can have dramatic impact without having to get more. If I do that, that frees up more profitability, makes us, gives us more cash flow, and the, the spiral starts going upward at that point. We, we, each of our efforts yields more, and then that gives us more to reinvest and keep, and keep it growing. Yeah. So again, there was, but I've always said finance people, if you're doing your job right, you're bilingual. And bilingual, I mean, you speak operations as well as finance. And when I say bilingual, I cannot be bilingual by just hearing operations. I have to speak operations. So I have to share exactly what you were saying. I have to share what drives the business and why they have to view me as their partner. They're communicating with me because they get something out of the conversation just like I do. And so the more back and forth, the more healthy you make the entire organization, because the more they know about where we're going, the easier them to make constant decisions that drive there. And so it's really it's, it's a deep level of understanding through that two way communication. Yeah, I, I really like that analogy there of being bilingual, right? You know, if you if you think about uh, the business, right, I, I may know lots of things about sales and I may know lots of things about marketing. But I may not be the the most uh, educated on customer success or product delivery or, you know, the engineering but, but, sprints, right? Yeah. And for for an FPA person, they've actually got to speak six languages in there and be the translator of all six across languages. The, of those they're things. the communicator across the whole thing. And oh, by the way, if they could tell you something more about what the engineering success is with a particular type of customer and what the attributes of that customer is, it helps to make you, if you say, how do I go find more of those kind of customers? I know we're doing well here. If I'm getting good feedback here, I know that's a niche we can exploit. It's a whole lot easier to go places where you've already got collateral assets. And, and customers that'll speak on your behalf is a tremendous collateral asset to any kind of sales organization. So you're looking for those things to make the whole thing. But yeah, FPNA has got to be bilingual, got to be moving back and forth. And that's the reason I love the practice. The reason uh, I agreed to do the Planning Aces podcast with Jack Sweeney at CFO Thought Leader was because I'm getting to listen to CFOs. He, you know, we're, we're coming up with what are they doing in FPNA that's really innovative, and we love bringing that together once a month and getting it out there for the rest of the world to talk about because it's really highlighting the limit. How can you make your FPNA team much more productive, much more successful, and a bigger lever on the organization? And 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 FPNA being bilingual is a huge lever across the whole thing to make it work better. Yeah, absolutely. And just to pause there uh, for those that haven't. Uh, you know, uh, this is a podcast. Uh, 
I'm going to promote another podcast, which is Jack Sweeney's CFO Thought Leader. Not only does he have his regular CFOs on, and that's a fantastic, um, you know, opportunity to go and learn what CFOs are talking about and uh, what they're challenged with on a day-to-day basis. But also the Planning Aces podcast is is also a fantastic resource. So if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you might have already heard about those two podcasts, but absolutely go and listen to them. Highly recommend them. And, uh, you know, uh, the contributions, Steve, that you and Jack have to that are fantastic. So well, it's amazing to me when Jack first started getting this, I thought he was crazy because <laughs> nobody knew what the podcast industry was. You go, wait a minute, you're a print journalist. You, you've been the editor of Consulting Magazine. You've been the editor of Business Finance and you're going to go start a podcast and now he's interviewed almost we're coming up on our 800th episode i mean he's interviewed almost 800 cfos talking about how they got the job what they're thinking about what's on their mind i mean just tremendous resource and those archives are out there for anybody to, to listen to you can keep up with the curly and then the curated podcast i do planning aces with him and uh and he has another one called workforce champions that focuses on the hr issues and with you know the great uh, reassessment going on with people that's a great one to listen to but again they're curated we take previous interview done and pull up the points and highlight and illuminate and and i know you guys have helped sponsor that we appreciate that and uh it's it's just it's just a very useful tool to get i mean knowledge is your most useful asset if you can figure out how to do it more effectively and learning from somebody else is so much cheaper and so much less painful (laughs) than having to experience the problem you know having to learn from your hard knock so yeah everybody take advantage of it yeah absolutely and and you brought up an interesting topic obviously the great resignation um and as I see the, the kind of the world of FP&A, I think what I'm seeing more and more is, um, you know, those folks that have come through FP&A and been through the world that you're talking about, they're, they're on the hamster wheel. They're in the, the low value dumb work, if you will. And they're looking for the high value smart work, the fun stuff, the strategic stuff. They stuff that be, has impact. Yeah, they want to be on the front of the boat. And so for those organizations out there that have still got their finance team on the back of the boat, chances are those people are going to jump off and swim to another boat soon enough, right? Um, so it, it, there's an old saying that, that, that you know, rats are jumping chip, the strong swimmers leave first. <laughs> yeah. And, and so, you know, it, it really behooves every finance leader to think about what is the type of work that your team are doing today? Is that A, what you want them to be doing? And B, how can you get them to the place where you want them to be doing that high value strategic work? It's not an overnight transition. And and Steve, I'd ask you the question, how long does this typically take, right? And and as you pointed out, you need you need a boss with the umbrella, right? Or or you we need a boss to let you try something. The umbrella yeah. holder, we call them, is gonna create a safe space for you to try some things. But I mean, I would love to give you a short, quick answer that you can swoop in and do this, but yeah. most transformations are typically two to five year journeys. Yeah. So when you go into it as a CFO or controller or head of finance, you need to be in for the long haul that this is not instant put as Deming said, there's no instant pudding. This is not something you come in. Now you may find some low hanging fruit. In many cases, there is some quick wins that you can win to, but a lot of times you got to dig it out. In most cases, what your finance organization in many cases are stuck doing is manual interventions. They're cleaning up systems that don't talk with each other. They, they, they're, they're, they're cobbled together. And so they're manually manipulating data. And so they have to, they're the manhandlers to, to push the, the systems don't come together. So you got finance people pulling them together and trying to make them work and feed from one to the other. And you can either take a little bit of time and pull back and figure out how to fix that, 
or you can just keep having somebody manhandle it every month. And they're going to keep manhandling it until they decide to retire or do they decide to go work for somebody else who's figured that out. So if you're still doing a lot of manual interventions, if your close is still slow, you need to figure out a move toward automated approaches, get your system talking to each other. There's so many things that we can do today that we never could do before. That, that, that there's just so many easy options for making that happen that we've, we've got to be able to just shift and move that. That's the reason Future Ready Finance, we're helping all kinds of different things. We're helping people close the books faster. We're helping do uh, process improvement, mainly because I just hate seeing finance people do dumb stuff and get stuck in routines that when they, they're capable minds, they're, they're talented people, and there's better uses of their talents. We're not laying anybody off. The good news in this, in this situation, Nobody's looking to reduce headcount by laying people off a bit more efficient. You're looking to free up capacity to be able to absorb what's coming at you. And the, the more streamlined you get, the, the more business will keep growing. Yeah, and I think that's an important point that, you know, the realization of all CFOs that I speak to since, you know, forever is it's not about, you know, reducing the size of a team. It's about being able to handle the onslaught of uh, work that's coming and being able to do that more efficiently. They're all champions of wanting to even grow the team, but they don't want to grow the team doing dumb stuff, right? right? right. Because the rest of the organization will look at them and go, well, you're just growing the team to keep doing dumb stuff. That's dumb, right? We don't need more hamsters on the hamster wheel. Yeah, I, if you need more people to close the books, we don't care about the books anyway. Just, you know, <laughs> you need to get them closed, but we're looking at the flash report. We're looking at the daily sales. We're, you know, we, we found ways around monitoring because we weren't getting anything from you. And so that, that, that's a good opportunity to say, if they're not getting from us, how do we simplify and streamline this process and, and uh, make it more, more efficient? Yeah, and so uh, so Steve, would you like to leave us with any final thoughts or how can folks, and, and also how can folks get in touch with you? Well, just go to our website, futurereadyfinance.com. Uh, it's a simple website. We kept it that way. Uh, we've got a lot more resources we're adding to it in terms of some of the knowledge pieces, but just drop us a line and let's start a conversation about how we can help you. Love to chat with you about planning and what you're trying to do. Love just just for if you're stuck in your organization and you're frustrated, send us a line and we'll we'll keep you posted on good things happening. We're going to try to keep advising the world. How do you move beyond uh, dumb stuff and into things that add more value? Well, Steve, really appreciate you coming on the Being Planful podcast today. Thank you for your insights and speak to you soon. Pleasure. Thanks, Rowan. Good luck, guys. Make sure you hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for stopping by.